episode 321, How to Point Out Low-Value Care Without Starting a Fist Fight. Today, I speak with Rich Clasco, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. If you listen to the show on the regular, you probably have a pretty good bead on a couple of things I've been really into lately. One of them is high-value care versus low-value care. These are terms that are really easy to throw around. You also can get pretty much everybody to agree with a plan to deliver only high-value care and quit it with the low-value care, in theory. But the wheels fall right off the bus when it comes to actually doing this. IRL, what constitutes high-value care and what is low-value care? Exactly and specifically, this answer is the crucible for value-based care of almost any flavor. How are you supposed to do value-based care successfully when it remains an open question, what is care that is of value? Here's the good news, though. There is a bounty of unmistakably, inarguably low-value things. We can start there. Now, these low-value things may be situational in some respects, so you'll need to listen to my interview with Dr. Mark Fendrick for the scoop on that nuance. But there are definitely some things which are incontrovertibly low-value. Here's some more good news. There's a few ways to ferret out low-value things, and one of them is to look at data on practice patterns across a specialty. You can index the data nationally or regionally or even within the same practice. Here's an example. Let's just say, on average, a dermatologist does 1.74 cuts or surgical slices for Mohs surgery, where they often get paid by the cut, by the way. However, you can find some physicians who are outliers, derms who have two standard deviations above that average. The good news is that a lot of the times, all you have to do is show the doctors the data, show them that they're an outlier, and they'll alter their practice patterns. So one way to figure out what the standard of care should be is by looking at physicians' actual experience and practices. That seems very fair. Marty McCary, Will Brune, and others from the team at Hopkins get a lot of credit for their pioneering work in this area. Other ways include assessing pubs and the guidelines that societies put out. I'm also sure that more and more it will also involve combing through real-world evidence. Today, I speak with Rich Clasco, MD, who is Chief Medical Officer at Motive Medical Intelligence. And we talk about the challenges and opportunities and solutions when it comes to identifying high versus low value care. Dr. Clasco has an interesting construct for this. We also talk about how patients, providers, and payers might have different points of view, incentives, and capacities really to distinguish the high from the low. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Rich Clasco, MD, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Speaking of high-value care, from a dictionary definition standpoint, just to, you know, level set before we get into the details here, how would you define high-value care? I would say high-value care is a medical action that is effective, cost-effective, and is effectively something that should be done in the first place. When you say things that we should do, is it things that everybody thinks that we should do? Well, I'm going to advocate a particular approach today, and that is appropriateness. 
It's a unifying metric that aligns the interests of patients, payers, and providers. It is the conjoint analysis of cost, quality, and the potential for harm. If you think of a uh, three-circle Venn diagram, appropriateness lives at the intersection of those three circles. And I think this is the unique innovation that appropriateness represents as a metric. So we got the intersection of cost, quality, and then making sure that what we're doing or the potential for harm should be minimized. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move into low-value care then, which would seem to be the opposite of a high-value care. Again, there's, there's sort of a lot that's open to interpretation there. So in your mind, what is not appropriate care? Sure. So low value, inappropriate care is an action that violates one of the three tenets of appropriateness. I'm looking forward to drilling in because I think these are all concepts that are super easy to talk about in theory. But then when you get down, you know, the devil is very much in the details here, especially when you're dealing with an industry with different stakeholders, With despite the fact that everyone's supposed to be patient first and very frequently is, despite having a common aim to do the best job that we can with the patients, there just still seems to be so much misalignment relative to what we should or shouldn't be doing. So maybe what we do is we start with patients. Just how good are patients at knowing what high value care is? Patients are not good at it. This is something that I write about a lot in the New York Times. But let me share with you an example that sort of underscores the the challenge here. I have a friend who is a lawyer. He's intelligent, successful, affluent. He is the picture of what one would think to be an educated healthcare consumer. So he had an episode of back pain not too long ago, you know, like most of us will in our lifetimes. And he calls an ambulance. The ambulance takes him to the ER. The ER gives him opiates. They do an MRI and they send him home. And he's incurred a bill for over $10,000. He's gotten some drugs that he shouldn't get that are not in his best interest. And he's no better. And, you know, perhaps the MRI reveals a specious abnormality that leads him to visit an orthopedic surgeon. He has some potential for harm when he would have been better served to stay home with a bottle of Advil. This is just one example of how an otherwise intelligent person in the role of a patient can go off the rails. But did he think that he was getting amazing care? Like, did he, was he the one that said, I need an MRI? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And felt that he got more by virtue of having demanded and successfully demanded that MRI. He was in the more is more school of medicine, which is always wrong. And if we're speaking about the physicians, we all know incredibly well that when you pay for volume, uh, surprise, you get volume uh, of services. But if we're talking about doctors with, let's just say, risk-bearing contracts, maybe some sort of global capitation, if we have a doctor that's incented to, I'm using your language here, provide appropriate care, on average, does a physician know what appropriate care is? I think the answer is yes. And I think that physicians have grown up in a world of evidence-based medicine and understand what is appropriate care. But our judgment becomes 
clouded or perverted by misaligned incentives. I'll give you an example of an orthopedic surgeon friend of mine. And this is an extraordinary guy, very talented as a surgeon and just an excellent human being, the sort of person that you want to be around. He told me that he recognized in himself that when patients would come to him with equivocal cases, cases which could be managed conservatively or they could be managed operatively, he noticed in himself that he'd start to think about the rent on his office. He'd start to think about the cost of the salaries of his employees and his overhead. He noticed that this was entering into his own decision-making and moving him, even though he knows what appropriate care is, moving him subtly towards inappropriate care. I think doctors know the difference, but it becomes uh, hard to see sometimes when you're in the forest and having trouble seeing these trees. I had Dr. Robert Pearl on the show a while back, and he, Dr. Pearl wrote a book called Mistreated, and that's a whole chapter in his book. And your friend is actually very astute to actually recognize the spillover of what the incentive is into the decision-making process, because it was real clear from the research that Dr. Pearl cited that most of us, it's very unconscious. Like we can say that we're not, that we aren't influenced at all by the financial incentives, but actually it turns out we are. And it doesn't matter what our moral compass is. This is just a sad fact of being human. I could not agree more. In this vein, there was a a study in JAMA a couple of years ago that showed uh, that 97% of doctors practice defensive medicine. That is over-ordering, over-testing in order to decrease their risk exposure. And I think what it really showed is that 3% of doctors are lying to themselves. (laughs) Relative to the high value care that we were talking about before, and one of the circles being do no harm, it's almost like this sad self-defeating prophecy because in certain respects, the more tests and procedures that are ordered, the more potential there is for harm. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It uh, gets back to Milton Friedman. There is no free lunch in the world of medicine. also feel like there's probably an element of there's that often cited quote that it takes 17 years for a best practice to become common medicine and there's millions of articles being published every single year. It's absolutely impossible for any given human being, regardless of their medical qualifications, to keep up with everything that's going on. And I would assume that this is also understanding what the latest is, is part of providing the most appropriate care. Yeah, you're right. That's a huge challenge. No one can keep up with a million articles a year, and even professional societies have trouble. The 17-year quote was uh, quoted to me from the leader of a very big professional society not too long ago. But I think they also bear some degree of responsibility in the problem here. Professional societies issue practice guidelines that are intended to digest those millions of articles into action statements for physicians that are easily consumable. But as I've pointed out in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, too often these statements are full of hedging and equivocation. It vitiates their ability to serve as executable knowledge objects. So here we are. We have this quest to provide high value care and get rid of low value care. 
We have talked about patients not so great at figuring out what high value care is and differentiating it from low value care. We've just talked about the issue that providers, clinicians, physicians may have doing the same. All right, so are payers really good at figuring out what high value care is then? Yeah, they tend to be surprisingly good. Really? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a revelation to me. Payers started with something that they call cost efficiency, which is, you can think of it as the uh, ratio of quality over cost. And that that got us two-thirds of the way there. It's a good first step, but the three-circled Venn diagram of appropriateness brings it further. Payers are now adopting this with increasing frequency and rolling it out across many states and many large populations and realizing that this is the next step in realizing value in, in doing their part to bring value to healthcare. All right. So let's parse that a little bit because I can feel it that we've got a lot of listeners with our eyebrows sky high right now. So first of all, when we're talking about payers, if we're talking about self-insured employers, which are the ultimate purchasers of healthcare and sometimes referred to as payers also. I'm kind of waffling because on one side, there's this reputation sometimes that self-insured employers have with regarding as cheap as possible as high value care and the really expensive stuff as low value care. On the flip side, so this is the other end of the spectrum that I'm kind of weighing and I'm going to ask you to straighten me out. You do have employers being probably the only stakeholder besides the patient to have an interest in whole patient care. In other words, making sure that the patient actually gets a better patient outcome because they're not going to show up for work if they're feeling sick. If we're talking about the negative connotation of cost equals high quality, how does that reconcile with what you're saying as payers being very adept at determining what's high value and not? So you're making a number of really good points. On the con side, Payers usually have a patient or a member for perhaps three years and in a sense are not fully incentivized to invest in the long-term health of, the, of that member. Employers tend to have an employee for a longer period of time and can take a, a somewhat longer-term view. But part of the adoption of appropriateness that I've seen among payers and really a genuine interest is not looking solely at the cost-cutting aspect of the equation, but the underuse aspect of the equation. And this is another parameter that appropriateness really brings to the fore. There is an underuse of proven strategies that save money, save lives, and are in everyone's interest. Here's an example. Fractional flow reserve, FFR. This is a technique in cardiology. Let me give you a background. When a cardiologist does an angiogram and sees a blockage in one of the coronary arteries, the unthinking reflex action of the cardiologist is to put a stent in and open up that blockage, whether or not that really needs to be done or not. FFR is a technique that actually tells the cardiologist about the physiology of that blockage and tells the cardiologist whether it needs to be opened up or not. And this is a technique that's been shown to improve outcomes to save lives in two New England Journal of Medicine clinical trials. So we're talking about something that is about as well substantiated as any piece of evidence in the world of medicine. 
but doctors don't do it very much. And the underuse of that technique is one that actually increases paradoxical costs and increases the potential for harm. There's actually many other similar sorts of techniques that uh, can be brought into the equation. So it's not just cost cutting, it's utilization, optimization of resources, if I can coin a, a phrase. This is, again, an innovation of appropriateness. Dr. Mark Fendrick from VBID and University of Michigan was on the show several weeks ago. And he alluded to the same thing, that sometimes getting rid of low-value care doesn't actually save money because there may be other high-value things that really aren't being done. But at the end of the day, if instead of spending the money on a bunch of low-value stuff, you spend it on high-value things, then what winds up happening is you actually have a healthier patient population. Like one of the problems with this country is we're spending a boatload of money. And where are we? Like 32 in the world or something? The patient outcomes aren't super great. The opportunity cost of the low-value care is, is problematic. It's hard to identify low-value care in our healthcare system because of the lack of transparency into costs. There are many, many examples, and there was quite a notorious one in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago. But even if one holds costs in abeyance for the moment, we have so much obvious low-value care that it's a target-rich environment. Antibiotics for viral illnesses are always a bad idea. Antibiotics are sometimes thought of as inexpensive, low-value care, so why should we focus on it? Well, the consequences of inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics can be Clostridium difficile colitis. It's a condition that is a miserable, horrible thing for a patient to have. It costs a lot of money to cure. It's just one example of the cascade of downstream sequelae that ensue from ill-considered low-value care. MRIs for self-limited problems like back pain or for problems that tend to follow a benign course such as headaches. These are our obvious low-value care that we don't need uh, cost data to show us our low-value care. And uh, the silver lining of our problem is that we have a a bumper crop of low-hanging fruit to try to make inroads into, at least in our professional career lifetimes. So basically what you're saying is that there's things that maybe are, let's just say, less obvious, but let's just pick the low-hanging fruit before we get into those kind of conversations. Yes, I would love for the government or some other uh, metaphorical magic wand to give us cost transparency and to drive us at a high rate of speed towards value. But we have to deal with the world that we have in front of us now. You keep bringing up cost transparency, and I'm not exactly sure what the correlation is. I'm assuming if it's low-value care, it's low-value care at any cost. Are you saying that if it's cheap, it still might be okay? No, I'm saying that we have so many things that are of self-evident low value, such as the examples I, I just mentioned. We've got plenty of work starting there. When and if we get access to real cost data, we can sharpen our approach. So if we're talking about one thing that I would think would be essential is for all the stakeholders to unify around what is appropriate, right? Because if you've got a payer who's like, no, this is what we're paying for, but the patient and the provider are not on board, that's going to create some drama. And probably the patient is going to be the one bearing the anxiety and the stress and the immense 
agitation that comes along with thinking they need some care that they're not getting. Like that could be a terrible mental burden to, to bear. So everybody's got to get aligned around what is appropriate. You just brought up a bunch, a number of instances where the payer, maybe the self-insured employer we're talking about here, is adept at determining actually what is this high-value stuff. But how do you get everybody on the same page here? Great. The way that I suggest doing it is through a universal metric that brings appropriateness into a quantifiable term that each of the three stakeholders can understand. When I've applied appropriateness in this way to payers, providers, and to patients. I've done it in a way that is what I call a high specificity approach. That is specificity at the expense of sensitivity. It's carving out those areas that are nearly incontrovertible. Some of the examples we've talked about today on the good good end or the bad end are hard to argue with. When they're presented in, uh, with, say, a one-page a flyer on the New England Journal studies that supported FFR or on you know, other practice guideline recommendations from American Heart Association, fill in the, you know, the rest of the list, it becomes tough to ignore. One problem that payers often encounter in dealing with their providers and physicians is the pushback. Physicians always push back, I'm no exception, in the same way. Oh, you don't understand, Mr. Payer. My patients are sicker. You don't understand. I'm better. I'm more skilled. I'm special. That argument has had, it's been surprisingly effective in making payers a little anxious about confronting their physicians about inappropriate care. Okay, so there's an ample enough bounty in air quotes that everybody agrees this is low value care. I heard a really depressing anecdote the other day about a Medicare Advantage plan that had a really negative reaction to the prospect of cutting out low-value care. They actually didn't want to teach patients what is, in general, low-value care. The rationale they gave was exactly what you just said, that they didn't want to upset their network by denying coverage for low-value staff or even, and this was depressing, by creating empowered patients who asked way too many questions of their providers. But when we all sit around the table around a, a document such as I've described with real performance data, granular performance data about how you, physician X, performed on this panel of appropriateness measures, how your colleagues in your group performed on those measures, how others in your region performed, how nationally other, others in your specialty performed, that false defense, that bravado that physicians try to throw up goes out the window very quickly. So let me just interject. We have a cadre of low value things that everybody agrees are low value, meaning payers, providers, and patients. Once you show the studies that are pretty much aligned, you're going to gain universal agreement that some majority of the time, maybe 99% of the time, or just maybe 80% of the time, but some percentage of the time, this procedure or test should actually not be performed. And one of the ways that you have talked about to drive this consensus with physicians who are not going to, in general, listen, let's just say with an open heart to payers, is sending out a sheet to physicians that shows how their practice patterns vary from their colleagues and peers compared to 
a practice, regional, or national benchmark so that doctors can see whether they are a total outlier or not. It's been a pleasant surprise to me how collegial and productive the discussions become. If we can share this information with patients, if uh, patients start to get a, a 1 to 100 metric on physicians, I think they'll immediately grasp the value that that represents as opposed to Yelp reviews. No disrespect to Yelp intended. Okay, so let's say we have a physician or a group of physicians and all the other kinds of clinicians working on their team. We have everybody in agreement to not go down some low value road. The docs got their appropriateness compared to other scores on some metric and everybody is now on board with doing high value stuff and reducing low value stuff. Clinical workflow would seem to be relevant here. Like, how does the team at some moment of truth know that we are at a fork in the value road? You've talked about appropriateness alerts in the EHR system in the past. One of the many criticisms of EHR systems is that it's really retroactive. It's a way to document everything that has happened, but there's really nothing in there that helps guide a path forward. So what you're basically saying is that what these appropriateness alerts are is, look, for a patient in this circumstance, here is the pathway that would seem to be appropriate for them moving forward. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head again. What EMRs have really helped us do better is to bill. Bill more for things that we didn't bill for and to drive revenues in that way. It's only reasonable to expect that the same technology could do the same for appropriateness and high value care if we only harness it. Yeah, the old, it's a glorified cash register (laughs) analogy. (laughs) At Motive, I know one of the things that you guys do there is similar to what we just talked about, sending out charts to physicians, showing them how they compare to others in their specialty. But maybe you could explain it better. Practicing wisely, is the appropriateness initiative from Motive Motive Medical Intelligence, our our full name. And let me give you an example where this has shown real-world benefit. One would think that you need to apply money to medicine in order to drive the outcome that you're, you're seeking. But we implemented the Practicing Wisely with three groups of cardiologists within a national payer. This was a total of about over 100 cardiologists. We simply revealed to each of the doctors their appropriateness scores on a panel of about a dozen cardiology measures, and again, showed them where they stand compared to their peers and compared to their regional peers and their national averages, and nothing more than that. There was no incentive, there was no penalty, but we came back and remeasured the doctors against these same measures six months later. And what we found that there was a 6% improvement in appropriateness, there was an 11% decrease in utilization, and the spending decreased by about 6% per member per year. It was a, in this patient population, it was a $3.5 million savings. That's the power of, I think, showing doctors, not allowing them to be ignorant of where their performance stands against their peers. We all imagine. I've never met a doctor who's different. We all imagine that we're the A students. But when data reveals us to be something less than that, we get with the program really quickly. So it definitely sounds like there's multiple prongs of any initiative that's going to work. And one of them is this sort of educational outreach. 
And then the other one is ensuring that the workflow is as helpful as possible, it sounds like, amongst other things, but those might be. You bet. Just this sort of educational effort uh, had real-world benefits, right, that were immediately apparent to us. But there's also network sculpting. There's also identification of high-value providers. And uh, there's uh, heavier-handed levers that that payers can implement to ensure that their members are receiving high value. If you incent patients vis-a-vis benefit design or with a narrow network, like if you've got a provider that is offering high value care, it's better if you're steering the members in some fashion to those providers. They have a better chance of getting high value care from providers who are providing high value care. (laughs) If you imagine that you're a patient or a member within a health plan, and instead of asking friends and family who's the best doctor, you see an icon that says, Dr. X has a 98% appropriateness score. Dr. Y has a 60% score. I think in a telegraphic manner, that immediately gives a patient some insight that something is up here. So there is a difference. And then provide them with enough understandable detail to drill down into. I think you'll, you'll find it's a potent motivator, motivator for changing patient behavior. If people are interested in learning more about Motive Medical Intelligence, where can they go for additional information? Our website, MotiveMI, as in Motive Medical Intelligence, MotiveMI.com would be a good place to start and to learn about practicing wisely appropriateness measures. Dr. Rich Clasco, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Stacey. It was my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.